0: Everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast. I'm here. And I'm Issa. Uh As we mentioned last month, uh, our co-host Hadi uh, has unfortunately decided to leave the podcast, well, this particular podcast, uh, primarily because, you know, his work has uh, become a bit overwhelming so he can't, you know, dedicate the necessary amount of time uh, he would need to, you know, really make his opinions worthwhile and watch all the things we require him to watch for Genre Equality, mm-hmm. you know, but like... Uh, although like he's gone, you know, he's always welcome back and I'm sure he'll pop back in once in a while in the next few months or years, you know. Uh but you know, we would like to give like a shout out to Hadi, lah, because you know he was one of the co-founders of the podcast yep. and, and quite a foundational uh member of genre equality.
1: Yeah, we did a good two years of uh podcast with him. Uh and you know, it was always interesting for him to kind of like lean in with the the opinions that he has and uh, whether or not he found uh, you found the movie interesting or were falling asleep at?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's a very it's a very clear black and white. Did I stay awake for it? Uh, kind of uh <laughs> judging criteria. Yeah. And uh but it was fun. La. I mean he had a more of a... I, I would say that he was like more of the layman amongst us, which is actually the most valuable uh, judging member because you know I think most people don't watch things with as critical or as uh an IS as we do like, because we look into subtext and things like that. Whereas Hadi is like, is it like fundamentally is it fun? If it's yeah. not, you know, yeah. you know.
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, it's good. Um I mean uh, we're gonna miss him for sure. Uh, but yeah I think you guys can look forward to us having more guests coming around um now with the new mm-hmm. format with just Hidza and I. Uh, yes. Yeah and so we will be we'll be having a guest next month actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you listen to our spin-off podcast, which is, uh, as you now know, uh, another evolution of genre equality is that uh, it's now become a channel. Uh, genre equality will still remain our flagship show, but now it's a channel encompassing many other podcasts which will begin to add in the next few months and years. Of course, uh, and our, our second podcast is a podcast called Behold, where we go beyond uh, the world of sci-fi, fantasy. Uh, and horror to talk about all the different pop cultural things, you know. Yeah, there's there's TV and movies there too. But we'll talk about other things as well, like books and and music. Uh, in the coming months, uh. so if you haven't checked out Behold, uh, it's hosted by me and Isa as well. Uh, please do so. You can find the links on our Mixcloud. You can yep. find the links on our Facebook page. So uh, definitely check Behold out as well. Uh, if you if you think that we are a good barometer of what's good or not. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully. Um, thank you, guys, again for sticking with us for well, what are we we're passing. We're gonna be. It's gonna be two years, right? Soon. Or is it yeah. Two and a half years, yeah.
0: Maybe? Um, two and a half lah. Uh, we'll be. We'll reach the three year mark in January, so we're in the two-and-a-half-year uh, mark at the moment. Uh, but anyways, I, despite Hadi not being here, we do have a lot of stuff to talk about. We're mm-hmm. quite excited. Um, a lot of them are Hadi's favourites as well. Uh, we'll be talking about um, Rick and Morty, the back half of the new season. Uh, the final seasons of Star Wars The Clone Wars. Yep. The final season of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Um, the third season of Westworld. We just saw Justice League Dark, Apocalypse War, which ends the DC animated shared universe, you know. A Bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, Speaking of Rick and Morty, Justin Roiland uh, debuted a new show on the same week that Rick and Morty came back called Solar Opposites. Um, I'll be talking about a new show from Greg Daniels, who is the creator of King of the Hill, The Office, Parks and Recreation, etc., etc. He has a new show out this week called Space Force, but we'll be talking about his genre effort called Upload. Yep. Uh, and Isa will be back with uh, a new edition of Anime Corner where he highlights, you know, basically the the best of the current anime season. Yeah. Uh, right at the end though, I mean, we're gonna talk about the big news. Uh, um, I personally don't do not give a shit about release the Snyder Cut. I've, I've never <laughs> cared about it, but it is big news. It so big we will news. talk about. Yep. We'll talk about it at the end. Uh, and on the DC front as well, it's been a tumultuous week for them. Ruby Rose quit as Batwoman, and we'll we'll give our thoughts on that as well. Uh, but first off, let's kick off. With a season, the, the latest season of Rick and Morty it returns from a mid season hiatus to deliver the final five episodes of season four. Yeah. Uh, as you know, it's created by Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland. Uh, what do you think about uh, the back half of season four? And and now keep in mind, um, as of this recording, we didn't manage to watch the season finale. But having seen four or five episodes, I think it's enough to to give a proper judgment on, on how the second half of season four fared.
1: Um. So I had to rewatch the first the first half of the season, right? Because I just wanted to like kind of see how, uh, it would tie into everything. And I have to say, the the split down the middle of the season is quite disparate, right? Like I feel mm-hmm. the second half of the season, at least the four episodes we got so far, leans a lot more into very meta, uh, kind of like. Topics or just like meta in terms of like the genre in terms of storytelling, and there's a lot of that going on right now, as opposed to the first half of the season where we kind of got like a through line, uh, Mm. with the first five episodes. So it's been strange. I think Uh, I'm not really sure where to place it. It feels out of place because it's not really a continuation of of the arcs that happened before that. Um. Mm. So. Uh, but it, of of course, uh, you know we've never really faulted um, Rick and Morty for anything. I'm just wondering if there is a reason why this last four episodes has been like that, and whether it's going to show up in the last episode itself.
0: I don't know. Um, Dan Harmon and Justin Royland seem to have. Uh have long stretches in between seasons and in between mid-seasons, you know. Mm. Um, it seems that it takes them a long time to to write and animate uh, Rick and Morty and, and considering how, you know, frequently dense and ing- ingenious much of the show is, um, I can understand why, lah, because, you know, they're, they're trying to push the envelope uh, audaciously in terms of creative, in terms of humor, in terms of meta, you know. Yep. Um, yeah, but but I, I think uh, the back half of this season also shows that maybe Rick and Morty does... Uh, tend to use uh, self-awareness and pop culture references uh, as a crutch sometimes. Yeah. Um, I liked all the episodes that we've seen four to five to varying extents, but I think probably in in my opinion, I think the, the standout episode that I just want to dive deeper uh, is the the, the kind of densely layered meta casserole that was the premiere, <laughs> yeah. uh, where Rick and Morty are trapped on a literal story train with literary devices as obstacles as they try to escape their own. Unconventional storytelling conventions yep. before the train, which is a thinly veiled metaphor for the show, goes off the rails. Yeah, um, and it's all done. Uh, you know, there's a literal Deus ex machina at the end, <laughs> um, and and each new car is another element of past stories and and more than a few markers that suggest that none of this is actually happening. Uh, non canon, which is another hallmark of Rick and Morty. Um, you know, at, at, at the end. Of it all, I thought it was um, a way for the writers, uh, Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland, to sort of um, exercise their anxieties over making the show. Mm-hmm. You know, how can we do things differently? And is our unconventionality itself a convention? Which is, uh, it, which is kind of one way that they themselves critiqued their own show in, in the premiere episode. Did, did yep. you think that that was uh, what they were trying to go for?
1: Uh. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, like, oh, obviously, when, when doing storytelling that's this far out, right, right, uh, mm. and the medium animation kind of allowing for that, uh, there are some sort of concerns, I, I think, as storytellers, as to, like, uh, how far are you pushing it? You know, on the one hand, you're leaning into these very kind of, like, deep and intense ideas and uh, making fun of them. But at the same time, you know, you also want to... Uh, um, satirized tropes and so on and so forth so it, it could very well be i mean the main thing for that particular episode that got me is that because we've also watched a, another animated series that has a similar uh train mm. <laughs> analogy right um mm-hmm. uh that we reviewed recently and i I just couldn't really shake that i was just kind of wondering if they were drawing a bit from that uh you know i mean of course the it's just image alone but the whole idea of being on a train and that being a journey and so on and so forth right and now with the Mm. new snowpiercer series Mm. just out as well i was thinking like oh, okay right uh it's not entirely surprising that they would choose that metaphor for it but yeah um i i don't know i I don't know if it worked per se Mm. right i think it was an exploration of some concerns about, like, the nature of what they're doing with Rick and Morty, uh, yeah. and it's interesting to have the characters themselves kind of explore that. Uh, but because they are characters in the story, like, there's no running from your own canon, lah, so to say.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I felt that. You know, like writing an episode like that, it's a bit of a dangerous exercise given how a lot of these ideas are ones that the show has engaged with before, yep. but but never in such a fretted way. Uh, and it puts all these gags to, I think, a, a good purpose, uh, nodding to anyone who might see the show's approach as becoming gradually form, formulaic and, and using that approach to acknowledge how fighting against formula can be formulaic as well. Yep. Um, Travelling through you know, the different style of cars, each with their own purpose, makes it feel like Rick and Morty are fighting their own conventions and, and criticisms, you know, like you said, in the style, in the style of Snowpiercer. Yeah. But instead of the different classes, it's uh, different tropes that uh, Ray Morty has employed. Uh, but I think here's the key, that even when going so deep into meta, with so many asides into how the show has become a merchandising machine and how male writers perceive feminist stories, etc., etc., like beyond all the denseness of all that Rick and Morty never becomes a drag, like, and it's still fun like, and it's still funny. Yeah. And it's it's hard to not at least smile at the scope of the thing as it was happening. Like.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious to see how they tie it up. I I'm hoping there's some sort of like you know they kind of pull the threads together from from the episodes that we had so far. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm not sure. Even if it doesn't like you know, it's been a pretty solid season so far. Yeah. Um, all things considered
0: yeah yeah um on the flip side to that episode though I mean, like you do have like a one note joke episodes like the face hugger episode, yeah which which just goes to show that like you know the the creators are still human <laughs> uh it, deliver like something that is okay just okay you know yeah um but for the most part you know episodes like the vet of acid episode which uh had emotional stakes for morty yep. with an inventive twist on the game saving concept and the prestige yep. <laughs> uh with, with you know some truly soul shaking existential implications with really funny jokes like i think that's that's kind of the the train so to speak where rick and morty really excels at. that's the particular car that they're very good at
1: writing yeah yeah yep yep exactly yeah, I I really did enjoy um the fake acid, vet episode. That mm. was that was I, I think it's the standout for me for this particular fi- uh, episode that we've seen so far. Yep. Yeah, just like something different, and uh, you know, again, like Rick establishing the fact that he's always right, right in yeah. the most kind of like convoluted way possible.
0: Hmm. And ob- obnoxiously as well. Yeah. Um. I feel that this season overall probably well at least the back half of the season. Not the strongest stretch of Rick and Morty episodes I've seen, but still really, really good and really, really inventive. Um I think I would give it a seven point five out of ten. Uh do you have any concluding thoughts in the rating?
1: Um yeah, pretty much uh I think we've covered most of it. I'm gonna give it a seven for this okay. um these cover episodes that we've seen so far.
0: Yep. Okay. Uh so that was the 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 back half of season four of Rick and Morty. Um I do feel that uh, they're them bucking against traditional emotional arcs, or character arcs, or story arcs, is starting to do... At first, it's very ingenious, but it's now starting to feel like I'm lacking any sort of investment in the, yeah. in the show, mm-hmm. uh, outside of how just how clever it is. A, and sometimes it feels like clever for clever's sake, and maybe that's why our rating has gone down a bit. La.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was... I, I think they've done some really, really good job with, with some of the side characters that we've had, right? And... Uh, mm-hmm. It kind of peaked for me when, with the revelation of kind of Evil Morty. That whole like um, Citadel of Rigs and the whole thing. And then Summer's kind of like character progression. Like yep. all of that was really, really good and solid stuff. I think mm. all of that happened before they announced that they were re-signed for what? 70 something episodes?
0: 70 episodes, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I don't know if it's just like the fatigue kind of setting in and all of that. We will really have to see. But I mean, we've got some good, a good couple of episodes here, but nothing like mind-blowing or like nothing that wowed me in particular
0: yeah yeah i actually felt the first five episodes from season four were, were a stronger batch
1: yeah i think so too
0: um at least in terms of the just pure humor mm-hmm. uh, it was i just laughed out a lot more with the first half but anyways rick and Morty is still a very good show and we still will still recommend it like it hasn't like gone off the rails or anything so i uh, do check it out if you haven't seen it it's on cartoon network uh and an adult swim of course yeah. uh next up we're moving on to The final season of uh, Star Wars, The Clone Wars, uh, in a year where a lot of our favorite favorite genre shows like BoJack Horseman, The Good Place, and Steven Universe have ended, Uh, yet another seminal one comes to an end Mm -hmm. with uh, Season 7 of uh, Dave Filoni's wonderful series. Uh, And and with all due respect to The the Mandalorian, which we loved, uh, I think The Clone Wars is, is the best Star Wars series just because, you know, like Mandalorian might get there one day. Yeah. It had a great it had a great one season, you know, but that doesn't make it a great show. I I've yet to see consistent good seasons from them. Yeah. Whereas I've seen a lot of them from from the Clone Wars. Uh, and the Clone Wars has time and the, time and again delivered greatness uh, and some might argue is actually the best Star Wars product, Star Wars product in the last forty years, uh, since since Return of the Jedi, I think. Yeah. Um, like all due respect to Rogue One and, and all of that, you know, and the Mandalorian, but I think the the clone was pretty much uh, nailed it. Uh, and of course, Uh, This final season on Disney Plus comes after a six-year hiatus, Uh, it was cancelled six years ago, Mm -hmm. Uh, and thanks to technological advances, the animation has been significantly improved. Uh, But best of all, the show feels like it never missed a beat. Uh, Season 7's 12-episode send-off was largely intended to tie up loose ends and bid goodbye to a show and an era that holds a special significance for many Star Wars fans who were weaned on the prequels. Um, but it also helped position its writer and its most memorable character, Asuka, uh, for expanded roles in the franchise's future. Yep. Um, season 7 broke down into a trio of four-episode arcs that filled in some of the gaps in the stories of two fan-favorites, uh, Commander Rex and Asko, Asko Tano, uh, who were introduced in the animated Clone Wars film that yeah. preceded this. Uh, the first four episodes followed Rex, and uh, the second second four centered on Asuka, and the last four brought, together, brought the two together to explain how they survived Order 66. Um, the opening season arc uh, Pat Rex with the Bad Batch, a unit of, a unit of uh, misfit toy clones born with genetic abnormalities that gave them unique look- looks and a set of special abilities. It's easy to envision the Bad Batch, who, which Lucas himself created as, as the basis of a Star Wars spin on the A-Team, I guess. Um, and the middle episodes cleared up Asuka's... Uh, after she left the Jedi Order in in the Clone Wars in the Season 5 finale. So it was nice to see Asuka again. And and her her team up with the Jedi-hating Trace and Rafa foster to wrestle with her role uh, outside the Order. Uh, However, at this point in time, it seems that many fans, including myself, were kind of getting restless in the first eight episodes. Mm -hmm. Like, the episodes were solid, but things like uh, Asuka's love interest and the smuggling side quests uh, felt... A little extraneous, uh, and the show was kind of a, on a time crunch to wrap to wrap everything up. This was the final season, after all. But but if you've endured the long wait for the Clone Wars to come back and stuck with the sh- with the slow start of the season, like your patience dramatically paid off. The final four episode sequence, which covered the siege of Mandalore and Order sixty six, was peak. Clone Wars. Yeah. Fulfilling uh Asuka, Asuka's actresses um, Ashley Eckstein's uh, promise that fans were in store for some of the best Star Wars ever made. Mm-hmm. And it, it was truly some of the best Star Wars ever made, or that I have ever seen at least, because the combination of the Star Wars, uh, the Clone Wars co- coincided with the Revenge of the S- Revenge of the Sith. I'm sorry. The story of it few surprises, right? Because, you know, it is a prequel, but the fourth part finale delivered some of the series' most cinematic and most emotionally affecting moments, as well as a host of elegantly constructed ties to the prequels and to Mm -hmm. the other Star Wars shows that bears Filoni's fingerprints like Rebels and The Mandalorian. Uh, The finale had all the hallmarks of a Lucasfilm crescendo, you know? Uh, Light light lightsaber battles, ground assaults, a battle above a planet, uh, a sift futilely trying to seduce someone to the dark side. Uh, it was classic and it was affecting. Um, it may have started slow, but it ended with a bang, so to speak. Um, so the final four episodes were straight up 10 out of 10 masterclasses. You know, the uh the Clone Wars, I can't express enough how much the Clone Wars has redeemed the prequels, you know. Yeah. Um the prequels were a joke and the Clone Wars made it serious, made it like an important part of Canon. Mm-hmm. Uh but that being said, like the last four episodes being standout 10 out of 10s. Uh, but others made the first eight probably range somewhere between sevens. Uh, they are about seven, so I think in total uh, it will probably be an eight out of ten season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, um, I had to like grade it a little differently. If if you just wanted me to grade the finale, the last four episodes, it would be. Brilliant, ten out of ten, masterpiece, <laughs> chef kiss. But taken as a whole, probably the season with its slow parts and the slow start, it's probably an eight out of ten for me. Mm.
1: All right, yeah. all right, cool. I mean, it's it's uh, again like you said, like no other Star Wars franchise has delivered the kind of consistency that Clone Wars has, right? Like Rebels was a romp, Mandalorian is great, mm. uh, but Clone yeah. Wars has has how do you turn something right that was so meh? into something meaningful right and yeah. it's it's taken them a long time it's taken them a lot of seasons to do it um yeah. but damn like it's it's a transformative work for a franchise that we know and love and hate at the same time uh on yeah. so many levels uh it's, it's really quite something yeah
0: yeah um I, I would agree with that man and if you haven't you haven't caught up with uh the final season yet right
1: uh no i'm not yeah. Cool.
0: I mean, I, w- I would recommend anybody who hasn't caught up to, uh, to do do so. Um, if you've been burnt out by Star Wars lately, especially with the movies, you know, um, we all have, la, wh- whether or not you like the movies or hated the movies, the discussion has been so exhausting yeah. uh, that, like, I almost don't want to watch Star Wars anymore. But the, the Mandalorian and the Clone Wars has really um, re- reignited kind of my love for this franchise, la, which has sort of simmered over the last uh, 10, 20 years or so. Yeah. Um, next up, uh, let's talk about the third season of Westworld uh, TV's probably most prominent series about autonomy and automatons. Uh, first of all, it's been heavily documented mm-hmm. that the season was filmed in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you unaware, uh, you know, genre equality is based in Singapore. Uh, so before we delve into the season, I just wanted to say, like, for me, it was a trip to see so many landmarks and locations that we're intimately familiar with being showcased in such a, a gloriously beautiful way, it kind of makes me proud of our country's architecture and it also adds a certain level of I guess realism, to my viewing experience, <laughs> because we are already living in this futuristic-looking city. Uh, the world that Westworld visits uh, doesn't seem so far-fetched yeah. when you know you've been to La cell, <laughs> you've been to Benkulan, or you've been to uh the Helix Bridge, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Yeah. Um. So before we get into the season, right? What What do you how What do you think about the Singapore locations, and and how do it make you feel?
1: Um. It was. It was strange. I think, like especially, uh, when they started popping up, I, 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 we, I went in fully knowing that I would see these things, right? But to mm. see some of these places that we are really intimately um familiar with, especially like the like, kind of like the LaSalle area, right, where we hang around a lot. Yeah,
0: um, the the Street where we walk down like nearly every day. I mean, I guess before the COVID thing happened, you yeah. know, we used to hang out there all the time.
1: Yeah. So to be so intimately familiar with these spaces, right, it was yeah. really kind of, uh, uh, it really took me out of the experience mm-hmm. sometimes. Right, I'm just sort of for a moment like, okay, I kind of understand, you know, what they're framing all of that. But the space isn't actually like that, or the space doesn't actually feel like that, and there was this weird kind of disconnect between that. And of course, we have friends as well who are also um, extras on that. Initial, yeah. Yeah. And so, like seeing all of them, it's nice. It's nice, you know, uh, to to see these things. Uh, But at the same time, it's totally correct. Like if we are living in a place that looks like it could be a dystopia, then we might Mm -hmm. very well be very very close to that. So. Uh, it was fun, but at the same time, it was distracting for me, I think. I think I was... Uh, there were moments where I was just kind of looking out for like, oh, you know, I know this place. Oh, you know, I've I've stood there, probably. <laughs> uh, and like, you know, been been there with my friends and stuff like that. So um, it was, for me, the train scene. And I think I, I had a conversation. MRT, right? Yeah, yeah, the train scene. Uh, we had a kind of conversation about that when, when the series first came out and that uh, episode debuted. Um, because to us, that's kind of like a, it's kind of like an everyday, kind of like a very pedestrian experience for us to be taking um, mm-hmm. the train here, right? Um, to see it repurposed for the Westworld world.
0: Several scenes actually, like throughout the entire season. Yeah,
1: felt very odd. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it was at once familiar and very, very alien at the same time, just because of the way that they, they chose to portray it. Uh, yeah and its purpose there um and we mm-hmm. were talking about you know like why is it like i i had a question whereby i was like why is it our <laughs> our train system passes off for something that you would see in like a near future dystopia right mm. and uh, I, I believe you were saying like don't forget it's a near future dystopia where these trains are meant for poor people and was like oh yeah well
0: yeah yeah and and also like i mean if you've been to america if you've ridden their subway systems uh, i mean they frankly look like shit mm. so so our subway system so our mrt system kind of looks futuristic to them i guess yeah
1: yeah uh, i mean it is it does have you know the look of it the aesthetic of it the, all the hallmarks of what you know a modern or a futuristic kind of like mm. um transportation system would be
0: Essentially, hygiene is the future. Um, if you've been to like new, the New York subway, it's just like graffiti and piss and shit and people masturbating in the corner, you know, that, that kind of thing. It just it just looks terrible, uh, So for them to see like a clean, well run train system that, that like shows up on time, that's futuristic for them. Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, yeah. But all in all, I, I'm glad they they chose Singapore. I think it, it really does look very beautiful on screen
0: mm yeah yeah I mean I've been to all of those locations, Gotmba you know and all of that I've literally been to all every single one of them I've never seen them in that in that light there I guess framing and lighting and, and things like that yeah, yeah really it does
1: feel life. very much colder uh in the series mm-hmm. i mean of course, like short of the fact that we have tropical weather all year round um but like yeah, just the framing of it, like the scenes that were set in Singapore outside of the kind of like strange stitching that they did. Yep. Um, you know, between like different cities and all of that, uh, which will only be obvious to us, I guess, right? Like, yes. Um, you know, I think it was the transition from the Helix Bridge into another, like the inside space that was like very clearly not from Singapore, you know, mm. or even like some of the car chase scenes where the roads were Singapore and then after that, some of them, the roads weren't from Singapore. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just weird that way and a bit, kind of like of a disconnect for me but I mean outside yeah. of that
0: um, yeah yeah I, I can't be helped to live there but I mean b- beyond the shooting locales let's just discuss third season as a whole as a whole I think first of all the big difference between this new season is that it is more streamlined uh, it's less structurally complex it doesn't take place in Westworld yep. uh, there is very little if a uh, non chronological timeline trickery going on, yep. which is which is refreshing. I mean, there's some Of course, uh, it's it's Westworld, so you got to do that. <laughs> but there's very little of it, which is a, a bit refreshing because it could have easily become a frustrating uh, trope. Um, yep. Plot wise, we follow the now, who has escaped into the real world, uh, where she seeks to overthrow powerful men and corporations running this. Technological dystopia.
2: Yep. Her
0: primary opponent is a guy called Ankurut uh, Sarak, a trillionaire futurist who has developed a godlike system called Rehoboam. Uh, much like the series Devs, this is a deterministic system when fed with all the world's data is able to predict the past, present, and future of every living soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, such a thing isn't so far-fetched. Essentially, big data is already mining our information for such a purpose, and it's already influencing our, or guiding our daily lives in a very real way, you know. Um, from subtly telling us what to buy or how to think and act yep. to directly manipulating presidential elections robo, robo is it 's a very short leap, so it is a scary reality, so I, I give them like that you know yeah. uh, but even before big data, our paths in lives are probably already predetermined from day one if you live in a capitalistic society, you know mm. from genetics to upbringing to social class to, to gender to race, whatever you 're born into, what we can or what we can can do or cannot do, or what we can become, is already pretty much determined by the select few in power. The Robum story is just uh, a a condensation of that. Um, So what do you think about uh, Westworld jumping out into the real world in uh, Season 3?
1: I, I was excited at the end of season two, just to kind of see where they took it, right? Uh, You know, with, we already knew at the end of season two that Dolores had plans, she wants revenge, and so on and so forth. But I don't think I imagined it to take the form that it did. Um, right. With uh, being out in the real world, this kind of like futuristic society where everything is kind of set in stone already. I mean, we're out of Westworld, but essentially it's still the same thing, right? Everything is guided, all the paths are laid out, the stories have been written
0: our loops right yeah
1: um exactly like loops and of course like Dolores herself in her own meta way as always always comes back to that right like say, i've escaped mm. you know the park but you know you guys are still kind of like caught in that whole uh um, yep. system that you have created for yourself you created your own god and he has mandated that you basically live like the host that you have created um, yes yeah so it- it was it i agree with you it was refreshing not to have to do as much kind of like mental gymnastics to keep up with the story this time around uh Mm -hmm. but at the same time i feel like this the more straightforward storyline required a bit more from the action sequences uh Mm. and just basically the way they kind of set up i had an issue with most of the action sequences themselves I think short of that one um action piece with Tessa Thompson kicking ass um around Dallas' office, right? Everything mm. else felt extremely awkward. Uh mm. and I'm not sure it was poorly shot, like it was it was strange. Like the lighting was a bit subpar for what I'm usually expecting from from uh Westworld. Mm-hmm. Um maybe because they had a bit less control over that. Uh, but Maeve seemed really out of place as a, a character that knows how to fight. Uh, I totally didn't understand how she did simulation training against Nazis, but ends up becoming a ninja uh, slash samurai. Um, Dolores is okay, but like just generally speaking, like all almost everyone felt really, really strange and awkward uh, during the action pieces, and that was kind of... Um, uh disconcerting for some reason for me i I felt like if you would it needed those set pieces and it mm-hmm. needed the action to kind of help to carry the the season this time around just because mm-hmm. that's a big part right long like you are a revolution you got conflict and all that plays out in the violence as an mm-hmm. extension of the violence that we see in the park itself uh playing out in the real world mm-hmm. um but it didn't quite land it for me, yeah mm-hmm. in general.
0: I- yeah, uh, I agree, like a lot of the action sequences disappointed. But I think more than that, like, my issue with this season is that the lack of timeline trickery, the, basically the chronological story that we presented sort of exposed Westworld for me Uh, without the flesh and uh, the mental gymnastics that I'm doing every episode. You yeah. know, It became, like, very clear that this isn't a good show. Um, that like the drama is very bad. The dialogue is poorly written. Yeah. Um. The actors in their dramatic roles do a serviceable job. Um. Good job, even you know. Um. But like this season really like had nothing for Maeve. It had nothing for Bernard. It yeah. had nothing for um the Hemsworth brother that I forgot. <laughs> um. I, I actually I don't know his name Uh. Ed Harris uh really wasted his transition from men in black to men in white. Yeah. It was very like uh quick. Uh, and underwhelming, extremely. Um, Aaron Paul, one of the one of the best actors, you know, uh, on TV. Uh, again, really like his dramatic backstory reveal after being built up for like seven episodes. It was just, oh, okay, that was it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh. Yeah, I, I just I just feel like a lot of the characters outside of Dolores, Dolores is the main character. Outside of Dolores, like everyone felt very underserved, yeah. under writ underwritten. Uh it just felt very rushed right, in terms of their arcs. Right, and it did. I, I just I I didn't I didn't like the season.
1: No, me neither. Uh, I really kind of I I, I usually for me like Westworld was something that I have no issue. It this was trying. Like trying to get through the season was trying. Right, mm-hmm. despite the fact that there wasn't mental gymnastics, and I don't think it's just us because we enjoy that kind of thoroughfare, right? Uh, in mm. general, with the kind of things that we watch, um, it didn't quite blend it. Like Aaron Paul looked lost, like all of the time, and it wasn't like part of the writing, you know. Uh, the Dolores Prime and um, Shaloris. Sorry, Dolores.
0: Uh, i they they call
1: they call her Hiloris. Hiloris.
0: Holoris, yeah. Yeah,
1: so Holoris is, like, uh, uh, I mean, by far, kind of, like, the best acting, the best story, the best character development, and then second place definitely goes to um, Dolores as uh, Charlotte Hale. Mm. Uh, those two definitely most fleshed out. Most, uh, If anything, I think, like, Charlotte Hale, Tessa Thompson did a fantastic job this time around uh, for this season, uh, and, like, every time she's on screen, it really is a fair bit more good. <laughs> <laughs> um, than, than anything else um, but like other than that everyone's just kind of like where the there, there's no like proper motivation right the plot just kind of like stumbles and limps along as it goes along I have no idea what banana and stubs were doing half the time and I don't think they did either and they just show up <laughs> in places
0: they could have been cut out of the season to no ill effect yeah
1: like very very honestly like it really just didn't make sense you know the review that the Five Pearls uh, mm. who the five posts were? I, I'm I, were
0: all the For
1: All the loris. Like even then, like that didn't carry kind of any significant weight. Like that revelation didn't add to my emotional investment into any of her copies at all. Right? Just because I I think like the focus was so much on her loris that it didn't uh it didn't allow for any of her copies to have that kind of like bandwidth for us to. To connect with them or to to be invested in the fact that they are uh, the same person essentially, right? With the exception yep. of Charlotte Hill. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I mean, like it's it's a mess, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, like I was just saying, uh, telling you earlier, I had to rewatch the last couple of episodes just because it was so messy. And like we wanted, I want to come on and talk about it, but I rewatched it again. It was just as messy. I just wanted to see if like rewatching it no cleared anything up. You know, was there things that I was missing? Was I not paying attention? Is there it was there something deep and meaningful and good in especially the last couple of episodes that I missed out on that would save the season for me? And unfortunately it didn't.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh I agree. I mean I on on a broad, very like macro scale, I thought the theme was smart. Uh, it just wasn't executed properly. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, um yeah. I think like even even the big Dolores versus Mae fight, which is sort of like the fucking like they've been building it for three seasons, you know, like they've never fought, they've always been on separate paths, it was like fucking like Rock versus Stone Cold, it was like <laughs> WrestleMania main events, you know. Yeah. And but like those fights itself also disappointed, yeah. You know? Uh it was it was a very meh season. La.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: It, it... Um Yeah, any any concluding thoughts before your rating?
1: Oh man, I don't know where they're going with this. I I think like the the fact that we just reviewed devs uh, a while ago, right? And like kind of like the thematic or the subject matter kind of like dovetailing here at this point that we have something to compare it to as well. Um, very different yep. tonally, very different visually as well. But mm. you know, it it felt done, like yeah, it really really did. And I it felt like two very different stories that. Didn't quite mesh, and it, frankly, I I don't know where they're going with this. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, speaking of done, um, I give it a four out of ten.
1: It was, yeah. I'm I'm gonna give it a five. I mean, I like, it's barely made it, barely passed, just because I feel that there were some really stand out moments, mm. uh, from Tessa Thompson, especially, uh, mm. that was worth like kind of like. Sitting truth thing, but outside of that, it's just yeah, meh is the right word for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, let's move on to yet another finale. Uh, but this time it's a finale for the DC uh shared animated movie universe. Yeah, uh, there, there is no real acronym for it, so that's why it's long. It's called uh, <laughs> Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, it's the 15th and final film in the continuity. Uh and yeah man it's it's uh it's a breathtakingly epic uh conclusion it is very impressive in size stakes and scope and it even puts something like uh the in terms of scope and skill, right yeah it even puts like Avengers Endgame to shame oh, and I'm not definitely. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's better than Avengers Endgame because I put this out on social media the other day and people were like, well, it's better than Avengers Endgame. I said, no. I said it's bigger than Avengers Endgame, <laughs> which, is, which is a very different thing. Uh, but anyways, the, the story centers on a devastated Earth following Superman's failed attempt to stop Darkseid in a catastro- catastrophic uh, galactic war. Uh, with numerous superheroes annihilated or enslaved, the remaining survivors, both heroes and villains alike, led by John Constantine, mm-hmm. uh, hence the, the Dark ju- of the Justice League, uh, must bend together to to take a final stand against uh, Darkseid in order to save uh, the world and all the worlds, the universe. Um, there is This is kind of a, a no-holds-but... Post-apocalyptic tale that impressively weaves together threads from Flashpoint, Justice League Dark, Son of Batman. Um, the violence in here is is um, shocking. Yeah. Uh, it's it's quite not PG thirteen <laughs> violence. It's it's above that. Uh, as is the scale of death and destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to see Batgirl get, get eaten by uh, by parademons or actually paradooms, right? They yeah. are a hybrids of yeah. parademons and doomsday. Yeah. Uh, you, you want to see, Hawkman? get torn apart viciously, you know, they, you can see it here, there's, there's, they hold nothing back in terms of gore, and just jaw-dropping death sequences, but even though the heroes and villains fall left and right, there's still a lot to go around, because this movie features <laughs> pretty much every single minor or major DC character you can think of, from Harley Quinn to Swamp Thing, to Etrigan, they all get involved to varying extents, but but all the characters uh of all the characters, I feel like uh, fan-favorite Matt Ryan continues to be uh, fantastic in his portrayal of John Constantine yep. in every show that he's in, including Legends, uh, with an excellent emotional arc for this uh, occult detective. Uh, and I think uh, he, he was rightly the star, uh, surprisingly actually, the star of the cinematic, this cinematic universe. Uh, yeah. What do you What's think wrong? about uh, Apocalypse War?
1: Oh, man. Um, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on the goal. Uh, I think mm-hmm. like what was the first movie in the series Flashpoint was it Flashpoint uh... Um
0: I'm not sure whether Flashpoint is the first one but I think it was one of the early ones Uh
1: yeah so if I remember correctly it's Flashpoint Paradox for us to have gone from that to this mm-hmm. right yeah. Uh and with like Young Justice all the way in the mix kind of the mix and all of that like this is this is dark like this is really really dark um probably mm-hmm. the most gory and most violent than it's ever been uh, yep. And I think they're just celebrating the fact that, you know, we can do this uh, because this is our last kind of hurrah before we go out. And, also, it's animated, and, you know? it's yeah. easier to do. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's definitely, I wouldn't recommend uh, showing this to any kids for sure. Uh, yeah. But um, the animated universe for DC has always been standout and we've always drawn kind of like... Uh, comparisons to it and the DCEU and fairly so, right? Because like on a much smaller budget, on on uh you know with much less resources, they've managed to take, you know, these beloved kind of characters and this kind of seminal storylines in comic book history and make them into two great kind of pieces, right? Yep. Uh and I think like Apocalypse War kind of put the capstone on that, right? It's really just everything that we've expected from them for so many years uh, and just plus some, right? right. Um, the I do have a little bit of problems in terms of like the pacing and, and the way that the plot moves forward just because it's so huge and there's so many kind of characters involved but I do applaud the fact that they decided largely to focus on Constantine uh, because mm-hmm. his... His kind of like internal monologue and like his his whole uh, introspection as everything is going on around him, really does help to um, lead the audience along in a way that is a bit more kind of like structured uh, amidst all of the things that are going on at the same time. And there's a fair bit going on, right? Yeah. Um, especially for people who have not seen um, the rest of the the kind of like animated movies prior to this. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a bit of explaining to do. There's a bit of like setup to to kind of like um, and flashbacks to kind of show people like why they are in the place that they're in currently and mm. that in and of itself i think for most viewers would get pretty confusing so to have constantine kind of be the linchpin in all of that uh really does have a focal point i mean raven is too but like not quite to the same extent um yeah and it, it really it did help for me at least to just have it grounded within like constantine's point of view
0: yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it it does in the end, right? Despite it being a DC movie it, in the truest sense, because it featured nearly every DC character that I've come to know. Yeah. Um. It it was still a Justice League Dark movie because Raven and and Constantine and uh, Etrigan were sort of like the main characters. Yeah. Um. Even Raven's in a battle with uh her her demon father Trigon was sort of like a subplot in there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh. And I think it does uh a a fairly good job at time-mixing the, the many many threads of the DC animated shared universe with a uh, with a bittersweet and and very epic conclusion. Um, it had a lot of like great uh team ups, you know, and and yep. goosebump inducing moments. Uh, this is a film that I think DC fans, if, even if you haven't followed the the movies, uh, a DC fan who knows the broad strokes of these characters, I think should enjoy it as well and mm-hmm. could revel in it. Um, if there is a thing to nitpick, it's that the sheer size of the cast means that not every character arc is, is served properly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's a, that's probably the biggest problem with it.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, we kind of face uh, uh, the same problem with um, the recent season of Young Justice, right? Where, like, mm. the, the cast has expanded so much. But with Young Justice, because you only see episodes, like, and they're cherry-picked across the entire timeline, that kind of is, a, you can forgive that. Right, mm. uh, and it kind of like focuses down on like the really essential parts of the story that that move the plot forward for for Young Justice. But this being the movie, right, that it is, and it, like so involved, and you don't have time skips, and you don't have like these major, you you need to show what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it it's, I mean, it's expected that people will kind of fall by the wayside, uh, yep. and yeah, it just, um, I don't think there's any real way to go about it differently, you know, unfortunately with, with when it's such a large ensemble cast of um, heroes major and minor, so uh, I don't know if we can actually fault them for that, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, lah. it's just um, a natural thing that happens when you want to do a movie of this scale, it happened with Endgame 2 clearly not every character can be serviced Yeah. Uh, so I think just based on the fact that I enjoyed it so much it's a 7.5 out of 10 for me
1: Uh, It's a 7 for me? I think it's a very satisfying conclusion to um, the animated universe as we know it. I'm not sure if it's going away or if they're no, just is just, rebooting. Ah, uh, right. So we're going to go into what is it now? Rebirth or is it New Fifty Two?
0: Uh, whichever one they, they choose, lah, uh, because you know, um, they, DC does this all the time. Yeah. They they reboot every few years. Uh, and, and it seems the animated uh universe does that as well.
1: Well, so long as the same writers and the same people, the showrunners, kind of, like, keep to... are kept around, I think, like, we've got more stuff to look forward to, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. Uh so do check it out if you haven't, it's out now on VOD. You can uh rent it on iTunes or buy it, you know, on all the different digital platforms where you can, you know, get your VOD, you know, Amazon and, and things like that. Um finally, uh for the main part of our show, we'll be talking about uh season five of Noelle Stevenson's uh She Ra and the Princesses of Power. It's actually the final season yep. of this show. Um, despite the fact that it only debuted in twenty eighteen, right?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Uh well we've kind yeah. of gotten like huge uh we got a lot of the seasons, uh like two almost two seasons within like one and a half years, I think. So the the gap of it has been very, very short between seasons. Correct.
0: Yeah. Um so uh layout She Ra and the Princess of Power season five. We both watched it, so uh we'll give our thoughts in in, in a bit. Yeah.
1: Um I th- there's a fair bit of go to, to go through of course, like, but the long and short of it is that at the end of season four, Shira basically gives up her power, right? Uh, as an act of sacrifice to kind of save her friends, uh, and then the beginning of uh, season five, we basically see her struggling um, to uh, to kind of regain her power without the use of a sword, which 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 was shattered in season four. Uh, this time around, Shira and all her, her princess friends are bringing the war to the Horde uh, itself, and now with Horde Prime, kind of like the main big bad in the series. Uh, She still goes about it with the same kind of aplomb and gusto, uh, but without the powers that she's had before. It's kind of funny and it's kind of uh, heartwarming to see her struggle and her friends encouraging her as she goes along. But I think the main part of this is that uh, season five has been largely uh, one of the most satisfying kind of like payoffs in terms of character investment, I think, I've seen in animation for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, spoiler alert, I guess. I mean, like, I don't want to go into the kind of the nitty-gritty of the entire plot itself just because, like, e- essentially all of them end up on the, the Hot Prime ship, um, right, for various reasons. And in that moment, uh, she uh Bo, Glimmer... Um, and and Katra are reunited, and that kind of like is the climax of the entire story, and how that plays out over the next couple of episodes is what's really important and kind of like what we want to get to as far as the review for this goes, uh, mm-hmm. right? So, Katra's um, redemption arc is maybe one of the best uh, that I've seen in recent time, um, mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, Adora and Katra's kind of like friendship over the course of this the last five seasons has had this... To call it ups and downs is kind of doing it an injustice, right? For it to have played out in the way that it did. Uh, And I'm being intentionally vague so that people actually go and watch it if they're interested. Um, definitely
0: yeah let's keep, let's keep it spoiler free yeah. because I know a lot of people don't watch here yeah but
1: I mean since the, a lot of a lot of um, uh, critics and kind of like uh, TV news outlets have already been talking about like the the ending so mm. I just want to touch a bit more about that and how it, 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 it fits into um, this whole realm of like very progressive animated media that has been coming out in the light of like Steven Universe and uh, you know with Midnight Gospel Hilda and so on and so forth Right, mm-hmm. it is a children's cartoon, but the themes that they've been exploring, uh, and just the kind of work that goes into the storytelling here, uh, and obviously, Noel Stevenson, we've been a big fan, we've talked about her a lot. Um, mm. really, like I'm pretty blown away. Like watching, yeah. watching season four, right, with the time skip and all of that. Uh, it was a good season, but like, man, season five is just like something else. Um, I did not expect it to come to this particular conclusion. Uh, I didn't expect it to be resolved in the way that it did and for them to be able to pull it off is uh it, it it's amazing, right? Like it's nothing short of amazing. Um and before we kind of like draw kind of comparisons to to what happens uh here uh and and uh or and Legend of Korra hits do you have any thoughts?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean like before we get to that, yeah, it yeah. It, it kind of the show very, very it, what it does the best right is that it it built over several seasons and actually pays it off yeah like really well it's something quite rare in in final seasons you know uh, yep. um it, it every episode it feels like a legendary showdown only to have a bigger event take, take place in the next episode you know so yep. it it builds and builds it gets bigger and bigger and bigger it all reminded me of the final season of um Steven Universe as you yep. mentioned not not fu- not future but i mean Steven uh, universe, universe proper yeah yeah, and and much like that show, you know, like the, the moral of Shira is is still that, uh, it's still to trust and kindness and love can triumph over adversity. It's just so much harder this time, you know. Yeah. Um. And and because of that, the the pacing of the season kind of runs at a, a breakneck speed as it it burns through plots, and and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, each episode has has at least one, oh my god, epic moment. <laughs> uh you know, as as the show puts pieces in place needed to end the story. Yeah. Um and every word and moment of the season has a purpose, uh, contributing to this puzzle that fits together in the end. Yeah. Uh, but even with everything going on, the show still finds time to give all the characters uh the development they deserve. Yeah. Um in fact, I would say that character work actually drives most of Shira and the Princesses of power mm-hmm. um, there 's a reason why Shira has focused so much on Ketra yeah. uh, uh, or at least as much on Ketra as he has on Adora. that 's because sure. their relation that relationship is kind of the backbone of the series, and this is the season where we get to see exactly what that means yeah. and in spite of everything they 've done to each other, Ketra and Adora are connected. And it's their time together, growing up in the horde, the trauma they endured, then and after, and the ongoing obsession they've had over each other while on opposing sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bond that can never be broken. And, and I think the voice actresses also pull out some fantastic performances, yes. Uh, showing how much they've grown uh, with the characters, just as we have. Um, it's hard to end a series satisfyingly, but Shira accomplishes it here. It's a very um powerful, passionate, exciting... Uh, emotional and and hilarious season that is very well well written plotted and it, it ascribes purpose to every move it makes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, exactly. Like, really, for me, it's just how t- one of the best payoffs, right? Uh very, very honestly, season two, season three. uh I kind of like dragged myself to watch those two seasons, right? Yeah. I th- I thought the first season was just like, okay, cool, we've got a remake of Shira, let's check it out. I love Noel Stevenson's work. It was good it wasn't great. Mm. Uh, season 2 was okay. Season 3 was mm. eh. Season 4 was good and it took me by surprise but for it to ultimately end with the season that we got, right, mm. short of the, I mean, the honestly, the pacing is kind of ridiculous. I don't think I've ever seen a series, an animated series take that kind of pace. Um, yeah. it, it, It's mad and at times, like, disconcerting but uh, ultimately, like, wow, such a satisfying payoff. Um Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, of course, um, I we have to acknowledge the fact that I think um ra is able to do what it does here on the backs of um, some of some of the animated series that we totally love, right? Steven Universe, of course, being one. Uh, but, I think
0: Korra is a big influence also. Yes,
1: Korra for sure. So let's talk a bit about yeah. oh, Korra. So um, the ending of Korra, right? It's a big kind of like a lot of discussion about that. They had to you know, everyone was waiting for, for the kiss and it didn't happen there. And it kind of like, they had a, they, they, at the time when um, that premiered, it was understandable why the creators of Legend of Korra could not do what they wanted to and ultimately shifted the entire relationship between uh, Korra and Asami yep. off to the comic books, which is still doing really, really well. And it's a great read that I highly recommend for anybody who's into um, Avatar and Legend of Korra in general. Um, but I think that despite the fact that they didn't get to put that in, right, that did set the tone and the ground for a lot of the, these makers that come have come after them to uh, really kind of push the boundaries. Of course, we are living in a slightly different time from then, uh, mm-hmm. but the kind of like relationship that we get to see there's a bit more clear here. I think with with uh, uh, um, Adora and Katra and like Wicklum and Bo and, and um, you know the 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 truths they have to share with the people that they love, right, or ultimately come to admit that they love in strange, kind of very weird and complex ways. For a children's what's supposed to be a children's cartoon, is mm-hmm. um is really a, a testament, I think, to how far the genre uh, of like uh, just animated series um in in general have been allowed to grow and to push yep. boundaries, you know. Yep. Um, so. Uh, I really wish we could have gotten um, the the Quora ending that everybody wanted, right? Not everybody, mm-hmm. most of us sure. at least. The reasonable mm-hmm. ones of us at least. Um, but for Shira to be able to show relationships, right, both queer and non-queer, uh, mm-hmm. and complex, uh, in the way that they have here in season five, I'm hoping that's something that future creators will continue to to pursue. Right, in, um, as long as it's part of the, the, you know, the story that they're trying to tell. And feel yeah. bold enough to be able to do that because something that got written off by a lot of people as just a remake of a kind of like strange, mm-hmm. uh, um, very sexist kind of uh, cartoon and a spin-off of, of He-Man, essentially, uh, has you know been flipped on its head. Uh, to such a degree and um, a very, very impactful way. So I'm hoping that people can build on that as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, um, let's not forget that She-Ra and the Princesses of Power started out at a disadvantage. The series faced backlash for not uh, conforming to what fans of the original 1980s cartoon thought the reboot should be. Yeah. Uh, let's not forget how mad some of the quote-unquote fans got over the fact that She-Ra wore shorts, you know, stupid things like that. Yeah. Um, Looking back, it all seems so pointless. You know, over the past five seasons, she has grown beyond its source material and created something. Uh, special that the cast and crew should be proud of. You know, it's built on the legacy of shows like Steven Universe and Legend of Korra, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh and perhaps kind of exceeding Korra Cora to to become a series whose impact will be felt in animation for, for years to come, you know. Yeah. And and I do want to credit Adventure Time as well uh, yeah. because you know a lot of a lot of people seem to forget that, you know, without Adventure Time there can be no Steven Universe and it it not have a lot of the same themes as well. Yeah, so agreed. um yeah it's kind of a golden age for children's animation uh, and and Shira is just another in a long line of really really great kids shows. Mm-hmm. Um I'm I would give it an 8.5 out of 10.
1: Wow, okay. Uh yes, uh I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. So both highly highly recommended. If anybody is curious and wants to like start from the beginning, I'm I'm just going to say season 2 and season 3 aren't great. Uh yeah. they kind of like pad along. Um you could go and like just read up on the episodes and skip straight to season 4 if you want because there's a time skip anyway. Uh, But I do think season one is important. So you can watch season one, uh, you can skip two and three and do the time skip together with the series. And uh, season four, very good. Uh, Season five, excellent. And uh, we highly recommend it. 100%,
0: yeah. I mean... uh... This year has had a ton of great series finales. We we just talked about the Clone Wars. Yep. We have talked about uh the Good Place and and Bojack Horseman. Uh, so lots of great shows really ending on a high this year. So yeah. I mean, good job. it used to be such a rare thing for for great finales, right? Yeah. Um, but everyone seems to have been nailing it this year. So kudos. Uh, and next up, we're moving on to a little segment that we call uh, Quick Hits. Uh, that's where I very quickly review some of the new shows that, uh, or, or movies that have been out recently that uh, my co-host hasn't been able to see yet. Yep. Uh, first up, I'll be talking about Upload, which is the latest comedy from Greg Daniels, who is a bit of a, a TV comedy legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the, sh- the showrunner of The Simpsons from seasons 3 to 10, which was... You know as we all know prime simpsons yeah where where the simpsons made their reputation like seasons three to ten he created king of the hill uh he created the u.s version of the office he co-created parks and recreation with mike sure and we talk a lot about mike sure but greg daniels was literally mike sure's mentor you know mm-hmm. and his new show is weirdly similar to one of mike sure's uh shows as well it's a sci-fi satire comedy set in 2033 that follows an app developer named Nathan, who is uploaded into a virtual afterlife following a car accident. <laughs> yep. So um, afterlife stories on TV are pretty hot these days, ranging from, as we mentioned, Mike shows show, The Good Place, which focused on moral philosophy, to the exploration of Domestic NUI in, in Forever, or even Black Mirror's best episode, uh, Sentinel Peril*. So what makes Upload different? Well, for one thing, the show is about capitalism, just in general. Um, you see, the digital reality is neither paradise nor damnation, yep. because your wealth on earth determines how idyllic your hereafter can be. Uh, the service is really just a means for company, for companies to keep keep profiting from your consciousness as you continue making purchases long after death. Mm-hmm. Um, the afterlife is just an. An app with pop up ads and different subscription tiers. Uh, You're programmed with all your earthly urges. So you need to eat, you need to, you need to shit, you need to wear clothes, you got to buy food, you know. And if you want all these clothes, you got to buy it. Uh, there, there is lag time when the, when the system is stressed, so it's, it's kind of far from ideal. It stars um, Robbie Amell, who is the brother of Arrow, uh, Stephen Amell, yeah. uh, who is um, effortlessly charming in the lead role as Nathan, and, and it takes a couple of episodes for Nathan to become really fleshed out, but the show gets there, and he's someone to root for even if he's really, really ridiculously good-looking uh, and, and more than a little narcissistic. Um, Nathan is assisted by a quote unquote angel, which is just the services term for a customer service rep. Uh, Her name is Nora. Uh, She works in the real world, of course, uh, and she enters the reality via VR. Uh, The two strike up a genuine friendship that maybe will blossom into a romance. It's a very uh, Jim and Pam dynamic, if you have seen the office. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that relationship is kind of the thing that really hooks you into the show emotionally. And uh, all the while, a mystery is bubbling over the circumstances of Nathan's death. Uh, Nathan, as it turns out, was developing a free app that could let anyone customize their afterlife uh, for free, which uh, threatens you know, mm. this billion-dollar afterlife industry. So was he murdered? That's the mystery element. On, on the outside, Nathan can still make Skype calls to his wealthy girlfriend, Ingrid, yeah. who is the one paying for his luxurious afterlife in a resort called Lakeview. Uh, unfortunately, not many people can afford something like this, uh, even Nathan can afford this, so he winds up a prisoner to the whims of his sponsor, Ingrid, who he slowly comes to realize is just this vapid, influencer-type person. He's forced to please her and cater to her every whim because she could literally withhold money or even delete him completely. Um, The world building here is is quite top-notch from the get-go, and its characters are beautifully nuanced and well-written. It has some very sharp points to make about capitalism, uh, income inequality, and data privacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, the accumulation of uh, consumers' personal data will always be used to exploit us and make corporations richer, which is what Upload explores. Uh, This is basically capitalism. Never ending yeah. in, into your afterlife. Um, but most importantly for a comedy, it is extremely funny, which is no surprise coming from Greg Daniels. Um, in its very first few minutes, like, I mean, I, I laughed out loud because Nathan is, is teaching his niece uh, uh, classical music, uh-huh. uh, which in the future is like a G6. Uh, <laughs> and and <laughs> that already made me uh, crack up so hard. Uh, and and it, it gets funnier every episode. Uh, and, and the world and characters become very well fleshed out. Uh, the only downside is that the setting and premise feels a little familiar, the afterlife. You know, there have been dozens of versions of afterlife stories exploring the human condition in recent years. So, this doesn't feel quite as fresh, which is no knock on Craig Daniels because, like, get this, he actually wrote the entire series in 2008. Yeah. Um, like more than 10 years ago that was 12 years ago um before all these other shows came around before the good place before century to he's been shopping the pilot episode around for 12 years until amazon prime finally bought it last year uh and upload is kind of, i think kind of a victim of unfortunate timing because i feel like if this came out in 2008 mm-hmm. 10 or 12 years ago it would be considered like a really visionary show uh right now it's just another in a long line of excellent afterlife TV shows yeah. but it's just not like you know special it's still super highly recommended though it's a 9 out of 10 for me
1: nice nice okay I'm definitely going to check that out that definitely sounds interesting I'm just so that I can see I like a G6 as classical music I think if nothing else
0: yeah that was like in, in the very first few minutes um, I also recommend that you read an interview with uh, Greg Daniels and Mike Sher, uh on Mashable I think uh, they both detail a dinner that they had in 2016 uh-huh. where they were both dec- discussing what they were working on right now because they, they hadn't seen each other since Parks and Rex finished right, okay. uh, so you know one of those like what have you been up to since we last saw each other etc so they both exchanged the pilot scripts for upload in a good place Yeah. Uh, and like five pages in they were both like oh fuck uh this is the same show (laughs) Um, ultimately they both realized that outside of the afterlife setting like the shows are actually quite different uh because one is the actual afterlife this is kind of a vr afterlife yeah and one's about moral philosophy one's about capitalism uh but they both actually independently came up with this afterlife thing um mike sure and greg daniels each uh this is no joke right like they had Uh, both India's pilot scripts had a no swearing running gag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, like, fork for uh, The Good Place if you've ever seen. Um, uh, So, Greg actually decided to take that part out of his show because Mike had already sold his uh, show to NBC and Greg was still, like, shopping his script around. So, it's kind of insane how they both came up with, like, similar running gags and similar (laughs) shows.
1: Oh, well, I mean, like, I'm glad that they didn't decide that you know neither one of the shows didn't get to be made like it's it's sounding like we all love a good place right um but you know if it's good to see that he continued to pursue it anyway despite having that dinner Mm -hmm. yeah okay cool i'm definitely going to check that out as well as the the interview uh
0: Dope. Um, The second best show that I've seen this month Uh is uh, a new show called Solar Opposites. It is the newest animated comedy from Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland. Uh, Right off the bat, it's fantastic. It's a much luther, lighter, more humane Rick and Morty. uh, And it shares a lot of the sitcom DNA of Ted Rock from the Sun, though. So it's more similar to Ted Rock from the Sun than Rick and Morty. The premise centers around a family of aliens from a dying world who are forced to take refuge in middle America. Uh, half of the family feel that the planet is awful, the other half feel that it's awesome. Uh, there's the adult parental unit, there is an uptight and insecure scientist named Corvo. Uh, the other one is a carefree and lazy uh, person called Terry. The kids are made up of an ill-tempered teen yep. named Yamulak and his uh sweetly upbeat sibling Jesse. Their personality clashes kind of serve as the launchpad for most of the episode conflicts. But these folks seem to genuinely care for one another in a fairly straightforward way, which is already sets it apart from from Brick and Morty, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Add to that, like the one-off nature of many of these stories, you've got a, a series that feels much more like a traditional sitcom in tone and tenor. Um however that's kind of like grading on a curve. Um solar opposites get kind of Gets plenty weird and absurd and ludicrously creative, in its constructions and narrative conceits, as though Ryland Royland were were given a a, a sitcom structure and allowed free reign within those confines. You know, hmm, okay. it's it's wild, wild much like Rick and Morty is. It's filled with pop culture references and it loves to deconstruct genre tropes, just like Rick and Morty. But like the key difference is that it also has a lot more heart. Like Rick and Morty is a very nihilistic and cynical show. Yeah. Um, this one is a bit more warm and fuzzy and kind. Um, the result is kind of a looser, flightier show, breezier huh. as a consequence of that approach it It takes most of the season to kind of get a firm sense of who these characters are mm. with uh, major personality traits still getting introduced you know and explored in later seasons mm-hmm. and but like after the eight installments, uh, the season feels like it, it comes to a perfect close and you get to know everyone really, really well the humour is reliably strong. like it, It's so good. It's actually much funnier than Rick and Morty is Wow. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of just pure LOL because Rick and Morty is more of like chuckle-chuckle-clever. Yeah. Chuckle-chuckle-clever. <laughs> this one is just like, you know, really like breakout LOL kind of moments. Uh-huh. The pacing is also very breakneck as he races from one plot to the other. It's hard not to be won over by this kind of avalanche of charm that is coming at you. Um, the look of the show is the same as Rick and Morty. It contains all the hallmarks of Royland's cartooning style. Yeah. Uh, but once you get to know the aliens, it's again, like, it's, you want to compare it to Rick Morty, but it's actually quite different. Uh, for example, in the opening moments, I thought Corvo seems like he's going to be a variant of Rick Sanchez, you know, mm-hmm. this ex- uh, exasperated, egomaniacal genius. But it becomes apparent very, very soon that Corvo is a far more relatable, everyday sort yeah. smart, but not overly so. Um, often irritating the others with his coding and obsession with work but he's also quick to be hurt by a thoughtless act or rude comments and he and Terry's odd couple routine is kind of based in genuine affection yeah. and need for warmth and companionship um, plus their cluelessness of over basic human society uh, it, it gets played for broad laughs you know um, a la Third Rock from the Sun uh, but there is a warmth and familiarity here that, that isn't present in the sometimes overly clever overly nihilistic Rick and Morty mm-hmm. um, one of my favorite aspects of the show is a subplot that follows uh, the, the male teen alien, uh, Yamulak. Uh, he has a habit of shrinking any human who annoys him uh, and storing them in the terrarium in his room. Uh, over the course of the show, we get to see small glimpses of humans being put in there. And then we get to see the dystopian society develop in miniature over the course of the season. Uh, you see a dictator rise to power, and you see lower classes forming a rebellion. It, it all builds into a penultimate episode that's just set entirely in the terrarium Following resistance fighters trying to overthrow their despotic leader, and it's actually genuinely like one of the best, uh, mm. like dystopian rebellion, let's fight against the di- dictator kind of, kind of, it's almost movie like, you know. Uh, and I would honestly watch an entire show just about the little humans and their new society. Um, <laughs> and that's just a very, very literal and metaphorically tiny part of Solar Opposites. Uh, all in all, it's a very winningly small scale. Uh, stand-alone, uh, episodic uh, charmer. Uh, it burns through plot at a voracious pace. Each installment can be enjoyed on its own merits. It's fresh and funny uh, and absurd in its willingness to go to goofy places in search of a laugh. Uh, the series isn't trying to reinvent the, the sitcom wheel. Mm-hmm. It just wants to be a good-natured exercise in, in warm, witty comedy. Uh, it's an 8 out of 10 for
1: me. Oh, nice. Wow. Some very high-scoring stuff so far.
0: Yeah yeah I mean I I I kicked it off like high up like with, with the the best of the of the of the month you know yeah. so those, those were the the top notch stuff like I'm going to dive into something a bit more in the middle but things I still like uh next okay. up, I'm going to be talking about bits Uh bit is a low budget vampire movie with a kind of a robust feminist twist on the Lost boys uh, the vampires of bit uh, have one rule over any other, uh, no turning boys. Uh, you can eat them, you can leave them drained, but under no circumstances do you make them a vampire because history has proven over and over again that they cannot be trusted with power. Mm-hmm. Uh, we follow a transgender teenage girl named Laurel, who is uh, played by Supergirl's Nicole Main uh, in a terrific performance. Uh, she is on summer vacation in LA. She accidentally falls in with this nest of queer feminist vampires who seek, seek to rid the world of predatory men. Uh, the film chiefly utilizes uh, traditional vampiric mythology, but proceeds forward like a feminist revenge fantasy. Uh, it's also refreshing to see queer women as horror protagonists, uh, not victims. Yeah. Uh, while the scenes that try to create a sense of magic and wonder kind of fall flat a bit, the fight scenes are actually very well done and quite effective huh. uh, the The drama develops between the young women is something that I think many viewers can relate to regardless of gender uh, regardless of gender um, overall, a very solid vampire movie and a well a breath of fresh air for the genre it 's a seven out of ten
1: Wow okay. nothing
0: special but but pretty good yeah. uh, next up i 'm going to be talking very quickly about Butt boy um yeah it 's b u t t Boy, it's called Butt Boy. It follows, um, it's a it's a movie on VOD. It follows a character named Chip, played by writer-director Tyler Cormack, who is uh, a man who is miserable with his life. He has a soulless job that he hates, a loveless marriage that he's tired of, and even though he's a new father, he feels unfulfilled in every way. Then he gets an appointment for his first prostate exam. Uh, that's when he realizes that he, he not only loves the feeling of having foreign objects in his butt, he desperately craves it, At first, Chip tries to get his wife in on this new fetish, but she turns him down. Mm -hmm. So he moves to everyday household objects. The craving slowly grows into an addiction. Uh, And Chip doesn't find board game pieces or even the TV remote enough. So he he moves on to bigger and better things until one day he goes too far. (laughs) So at first, we don't know what, what too far means. That's when we meet grizzled detective Russell Fox. He looks like every other police detective in every movie you've seen. You know, the slick back hair, the long trench coat, the drinking problem. Fox is so stereotypical that the other detectives even, like, call him out on this. You know? Um, It's obviously played for laughs. um, Fox is involved in a missing persons case involving several children. Mm. Uh, When he learns about Chip's ability, he puts the pieces together and realizes that these kids have been disappearing up Chip's butt um, so begins a very bizarre cat and mouse game I've seen in years. Uh, the most bizarre thing, um, because you know this is literally a man with a superpower to stick anything up his butt, uh, <laughs> including small children. Uh, keep in mind that they are not dead, they're they living in his rectum. Um, I'll, I'll get to that later. <laughs> um, so um, what makes Bug Boy fascinating uh, is how seriously it approaches this concept. It's, it's, it's a hilarious and disturbing film, but instead of a street comedy, right, it treats the story with a seriousness of a David Fincher thriller about a hardened detective on the hunt for a demented serial killer. Like, sure, yeah, there are some comedic moments that will make you laugh out loud, but it keeps a serious, super serious tone that sells the gravitas, you know, of the story, despite the ludicrous subject matter. Um, without saying much, because you really should see this movie without knowing about where it goes, but... But boy defies its limited budget and presents some truly disturbing yet uh, impressive visuals. Uh, but before it gets there, comics uh, debut feature uses a slow pace to distract the audience mm-hmm. and give them no indication of how wild and how far they'll take <laughs> the concept. You know, yeah. um, like it's it's like you're watching Seven, but the, the criminal is a guy who stuffs things up. His butt. But yeah, um, when the film re- re- reaches, it's like holy shit act, which takes place entirely up Chips' ass. Um, I I could not believe what I was watching, Because like the entire third act is just up his ass. Um, <laughs> I was I was engrossed and invested in the story, and and I completely believed everything that was happening belonged with the rest of the movie. Uh, but boy, is very very entertaining and weird, and and it's like it's not high art. It's kind of flawed. Um, it's not even that good, but the premise is so wild that I think you should watch it anyway. It's uh, a <laughs> Six out of ten. Uh, so 6 out of 10, solid recommend. You should watch it if you have time, or if you're high or something. <laughs> just, just go, go, go give it a shot.
1: Yeah, good.
0: Uh, very quickly, I'm going to be talking about Sea Fever. It's written and directed by Niesa Hardiman, uh, no relation to our former co-host. Uh, this Irish uh, indie sci-fi horror is a bit like Alien on the Ocean, featuring a group of people on a ship. Huh. begin to be picked off by a mysterious aquatic monster it's not like uh, the, the other one that takes place under the ocean this one's on a boat um it's led by a really really good performance by someone called hermione uh, caulfield who plays a uh, siobhan a marine biology student who joins a family fishing boat to do research for a doctorate when out in the deep atlantic an unknown life form ensnares the boat mm-hmm. uh this engaging thriller makes a great uh makes great use of its setting to create this palpable sense of claustrophobia and as I mentioned, its Lee character is very, very watchable. Uh, she's shy, introverted, and not as strong as like Ripley was in Alien, but she's very smart, and you get the sense that she can outwit whatever dangers come her way. Uh, sea Fever keeps the audience engaged from frame one, but does suffer from a lack of momentum and originality. Um, you like Sea Fever. It's well-made and entertaining to watch, but very little of it sticks with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caulfield's performance does, as does the, the setting, the claustrophobic setting. But uh beyond that, it feels like a movie you've seen before. It's just, y- you feel like you've seen a million of this, but this is like one of the better executed ones. It's a 6.5 out of 10 for me. Oh, wow. Okay. A uh, couple last ones before we move on. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Porno. uh, P-O-R-N-O. Um, it's not a porn movie. Uh, it is a, it's a horror movie that takes place in an old school movie theater, circa 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, porno. Uh, por- <clears throat> excuse me, porno, uh, follows five super religious teens who work at a local movie theater in a small Christian town. One slow night, they discover a mysterious old film hidden in the basement. To us, it looks like a 1970s erotic movie, but to them, being good Christian youths in the in a pre-internet age, they have no idea what it's supposed to be. They, they don't know the difference between a dirty movie and an arty one. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, playing the movie unleashes... And the on-screen succubus, who then uh, preys on each person's desire to steal their souls. Uh, as far as B-grade horror flicks go, porno has a terrific, if uh, over-the-top uh, references to 80s and 90s teen movies, uh, it pays so much to horror porn, which is kind of a lost genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the gags are amazing, such as uh, witnessing one of the teen's uh, testicles explode. Uh, but unfortunately, the humor is a bit uneven. Uh, there okay. are more misses than hits, actually, right. which really drags down an otherwise fun premise. So it's a 4.5 out of 10.
1: Uh, okay.
0: Yeah, I like the premise, just mm. some of the jokes like, don't work. For. Finally, I want to talk about The Wretched. Uh, the Wretched is a new super, super low-budget indie horror film, and surprisingly has become a hit on VOD, where it's remained number one in the US for the last three weeks on all platforms. Um, The movie follows a defiant teenage boy struggling with his parents' imminent divorce who ends up fighting an old witch who has possessed the next-door neighbour. It's a kind of a no-frills, back-to-basics kind of horror, something you might find in the 80s and 90s as the direct-to-VHS release. It breaks no moulds, there is a certain retro charm to its style and aesthetic right down to the cheap practical effects mm-hmm. it's pre- pretty much boilerplate but it is successful in its modest ambition it's the kind of movie that you use to kind of blindly rent on video easy on a Friday night um. uh, you, you see a, a creepy witch on the cover and then the movie delivers a creepy witch and it, it's just that it's a solid <laughs> film. Um six out of ten for me. Uh and that's it for this month's quick hits. Uh anything like particularly stood out to you or that you wanted to watch? I mean
1: I'm definitely gonna check out uh upload. Uh I'll say Bud Boy for like for when I have time. Uh, for giggles, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. For, for shit uh, for shit and giggles, no pun intended. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we'll find some time in, in our watching schedule to go and kind of do that. But definitely those two. Uh bit sounds interesting, uh, but I mean we'll we'll see if I can we'll check that out. Yeah.
0: yeah, I'll re- actually recommend Solar Opposites over a bit, but yeah, both are worthwhile. Yeah,
1: I mean, Solar Opposites, I've already kind of started already, so... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so I totally agree with you. Um, so if we just jump back for a bit, like, uh, Solar mm-hmm. Opposites is a very different animal from Rick and Morty. Yep. It looks familiar and it looks the same, but it feels so different and I'm really enjoying it, I have to say.
0: Yeah, I mean it's just because that's Justin Roiland's cartooning style. Yeah, uh, that that's why and because he has aliens and has sci-fi, I guess the comparison, but it's actually a very, very different show. Mm. Uh yeah. And next up we'll be jumping into uh Isis anime corner where we'll be highlighting uh the best uh shows from this current season of anime. So what what do you have up your Steve, Isa? Uh,
1: okay. So for this season when what what are we now? Spring, spring twenty twenty. Um I'm a bit disappointed. I think a lot of the, the, the series I'm going to talk about are returning franchises uh, okay. that are coming back. So I'll talk about those first and get out of the way before I have two recommendations this time around. Um, so first, I'm going to talk about our favorite kind of like food, po- anime food porn show, which is uh, mm-hmm. Shogu no Soma. Uh, the Fifth Plate is out this time round uh Soma and his friends are in a very very different place in the world Soma is now part of um uh the elite 10 uh, and this everything's been shaken out uh they've uh Arena is now the director of the school and uh we kind of embark on their adventures uh in this new kind of position in life and now they are in their uh second year uh of um their course in in culinary school um, what's interesting is the introduction of a mysterious chef that beats Joichiro, uh, and apparently he is setting his sights on uh, Soma at some point in time. So we we don't uh, they haven't revealed who that is yet uh, exactly. There have been a couple of hints, but nobody's really nobody knows for sure uh, as far as the anime goes. Anyway, if you are reading the manga, then please um, save your friends the grief and don't spoil it for them uh yeah but um so far a couple episodes in it's all the same things that we've come to know and love about that we've got like over the top like food reactions we've got some amazing kind of like uh uh, depictions of food and the recipes that they're doing and kind of like the really in-depth research that i've come to really enjoy from from a show like this uh it's more of the same uh and um From what I understand that this arc is going to be pretty fascinating, especially in the tail end of it. So I'm looking forward to see what that's going to be about. Um, I'm just going to give it a 7.5 based off the four episodes that I've seen so far. And uh, if you love the rest of the seasons, then this is more of uh, more food for you. More food for your plate. Awesome.
0: Awesome. It's a fifth plate, right? Season five? Yeah,
1: season five. That's right. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm also going to talk about... I don't know if I've recommended the first season of this. I think I might have mentioned it before. Uh, as a normal, but Kaguya-sama Love is War season two is currently out. And it's also currently out on Netflix for those of you that aren't, uh, you know, uh, into going to look for your anime. Uh, and again, we are exploring the student council of a high school and the strange love antics, uh, and machinations between their student council president and her vice president and his vice president. Uh, I think I covered a bit of it before. Um, in season two, it's more of the same, but I think some of the jokes are getting a bit more complex because you need to have watched season one to kind of understand they're kind of building on themselves again. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, it's really, really, really funny. Uh, and if anybody hasn't checked it out, it's a bit of a like school slice of life uh, comedy. That
0: uh, community-esque, would you say?
1: Um, Pretty close. Like it, it. I, I started on Kaguya Summer because it, uh, reminds me of this much older anime called uh, Seto Kaicho, uh, yeah. which was also about a student council, and it just had the most bizarre. That is very. That one was really very community. I think Kaguya-sama Love War is uh on the same kind of path, uh, mm. and it is uh, it is it's always enjoyable for some strange reason. If I need something like just to kind of like laugh about, uh, there's nothing really much to think about, but it's cute, it's heartwarming, and it's really funny. Um, yeah. so that's on Netflix right now if you guys want to check that out uh, it's really good I'm going to give it a 7.5 for me for season nice. 2 I-, I believe I gave season 1 a 7 so yep. that's going to be it uh, Fruits Basket the remake has um, is going to season 2 and we a year has passed since uh, Turu Honda and has started living with the Soma family in the residence um, for those of you who have watched the original fruit Basket and I've already covered this uh, for season 1 Um, the original Fruit Basket is a cult hit but there were a lot of things that were lacking in terms of like very poor animation and a Uh lot of very sloppy kind of like shortcuts that the animation studio took. Um, Definitely agree. The remake, however, is totally different, right? Season 1 gave us some fantastic animation, some gorgeous animation if I should say so myself and uh, some uh, really, really good music as well to go with that uh, to accompany this very um, charming if somewhat dark story about a girl who stumbles upon a family with magical powers um, mm-hmm. where the boys all turn into different animals um, when they are touched. Yeah, so um, season 2 is more of the same and we're continuing the story with that. Um, for those of you that got into season 1 or haven't got into season 1, please stick with season 2. Uh, there are going to be a lot of reviews here if you haven't watched the original Fruit Basket. Uh, and um the creators have been saying that um uh, they are going to be a bit more true uh to the manga itself, so we'll get to see things play out as those of us who 've read the manga will want to see as opposed to how it ended up in the original um kind of iteration of it so that 's fruit basket <laughs> season two um i 'm giving it uh it 's a good six point five out of ten it 's enjoyable, and if you like the franchise then uh it 's been good now yeah um we still have all the other things go uh, going on. This, um, uh, What is it? Real Gun is still going on. If you guys are still mm-hmm. keen for that. Black Clover is still going on. If you guys are still keen on that. But I'm going to move on to my two recommendations for a new anime that's come this round. First of all, I'm going to start out with Tower of God. Uh, that might sound familiar. i have been listening to, to us for a while because we've talked about it a couple of times, both here on Genre Equality as well as um, on oh, Behold on Behold yeah. right uh, because we yeah. were drawing um, we were talking about solo 11 manhwas uh, yeah manhwas in general so Tower of God is, is kind of yeah. like a at this point almost a legendary Korean manhwa right uh, and uh, it recently got picked up by Tencent I believe uh, and got made into the anime so I was really curious to see uh, um, for those of you that don't know Tower of God is a massive massive uh, read there's like several hundred Episodes. I mean it, it could rival one piece as far as the number of um chapters that are available uh for the main story itself, right? The problem with reading the Manhwa is that um the pacing is a bit poor. Uh and which and it's being the fact that there's just so much to consume, like it hardly ever gets the point. I do feel that the anime has solved some of those problems. Uh like just in general, like having movement and the fight scenes and, and the music and all of that really does help with the way that the plot kind of moves forward. So we are a couple of episodes in, I'm really enjoying it. The artwork is very true to the original art style, but it adds more, right? Like just like the lighting and the way some of the creative decisions that they've chosen to to make uh, really does add quite a fair bit of value here. Of course, Tencent has plenty of money to throw at this. Um, mm-hmm. So we're a couple of episodes in. Uh, I'm really enjoying it as far as it goes, just because, you know, I was a big fan of the manhwa. Well, at least up to the point that I made it, which was maybe 300, I think. Um, And I didn't really manage to read anything past that. But um, it's been very promising so far. I'm really interested to see where it goes from here because there's a ton of material for them to kind of chew through. If they go at the pacing that the first four episodes have so far, I think we'll be we're in a pretty good place to have a very long running, uh, anime series, uh, that nice. promises to deliver some really really good, um, uh, inventive kind of like fantasy, ideas. Uh, so Tower of God, I really like it. I'm gonna give what I have so far an eight. Um, we'll see if it manages to live up to that in the coming episodes itself. And finally, I'm going to talk about Wave. Listen to me, uh, which is honestly my favorite of this season. Uh, and for this is going to appeal to a very specific kind of demographic. So basically, uh, Minari Koda is a restaurant worker who has recently uh, gone through a really bad breakup. And uh, while she's heartbroken, she goes out uh, at night, gets drunk and rants about her misery to a, a complete stranger. Uh, who right. happens a therapist to be, or just... Like no, just a, a complete stranger at, at a bar and who happens to be a radio station director um, oh. in Sapporo, Hakkaido, where the entire story kind of takes place, right? Mm. Um, the next day, um, Minari is shocked to hear a recording of her rant of herself from the previous night playing over local radio, right? Wow. Um, when she finds somebody, she rushes over the radio station in a frenzy to kind of stop, stop the broadcast. And she com- confronts Mato, who's the director of the radio station. Uh, it sets off like a, a chain of a-, a series of events that leads to her ending up giving a very kind of improv talk live on air to explain mm. her rant from the day before. Yep. Uh, and because of, of of just her demeanor and and her voice and all of that, um, she, uh, Mato, <laughs> the director, recognizes her as as a kind of like raw talent. So, Minari ends up becoming a late-night talk show host under oh, his wow. direction, right? Yes. And uh, basically, she covers kind of like amusing narratives and stories from her life and other people's lives that are set in Sapporo, all the while balancing her act, uh, balancing her, her daytime job as a restaurant worker and, you know, her personal life. Uh, the kind of, I mean, this is a lovely, funny slice of life, uh, adult mm-hmm. working, uh, uh, working comedy, um, that is very kind of reminiscent of working, um yeah. if you guys have ever seen that uh it, it's not by the same author though, but um I love it. It's so good, it's so funny and i I think like there are a lot of touch points with just the the whole like genre video with us being podcasters as well uh, mm-hmm. you know that are really, really appealed to me, but the music choice is fantastic the their use of music is so apt and so precise for a series that has to do with Radio Talk Truth itself um, I'm really enjoying this and it's my favourite so far and usually Slice of Life stuff doesn't really come out on top in any particular season um, mm. but yeah Wave Listen to Me is really a solid pick I've enjoyed the episode so far and it's a 8 out of 10 for me um, as it stands right now
0: Where could one find it?
1: Um, let I think it is on Crunchyroll, if I believe so.
0: Okay, yeah, nice. Yeah. it it's off. Reminds me um a bit of uh marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh in a sense that you know this lady goes up to rant about something and then finds a new career in it. Right. Uh, and then and then it kind of relates her, her life frustrations and observations into this whole new. Korea yeah it's it's very interesting it
1: does bear semblance to that it really uh, the, some of the beats feel the same i, I I'll have mm-hmm. to say anyways um it's on Funimation, not on country roll nice. yeah, okay for those of you who don't know where don't know where to find your anime yeah, mm-hmm. so that wraps up anime corner for this week uh there were a couple of others that kind of started off really great, and then as we kind of hit usually I give it three episodes, but just because like the way the season uh, when the season started it was the beginning of April um and now like we're at what end of may already so uh i managed to catch a bit more than that and some of them dropped off after the third episode and i didn't want to recommend those um but yeah that's uh that's it for me from anime corner we will be picking that up again when the summer season picks up which is usually um traditionally the best season uh and we'll talk more about anime then
0: Nice. Um, finally, before we jump into the big DC news, um, for the pool list this, this month, uh, I wouldn't be recommending a title specifically, but I will be recommending a, a digital service, um, Shonen Jump Weekly. Um, digital comics have kind of been a big part of the comics industry for years at this point, right? Yep. Uh, yet somehow it feels like when it comes to the big publishers, subscription access to their biggest hits is kind of weirdly compromised on the DC side it's tied into DC universe which is great unless you just want comics on the Marvel side unlimited uh, restriction primarily skewed towards its back catalog rather than current issues yeah. so for weekly shonen jump app which is currently available in singapore if you live here but also in the us canada the uk ireland new zealand australia south africa the philippines and india it is Frankly, it knocks the majority of current digital subscription services on their asses. At least in terms of comics, mm-hmm. for free, for free, right? You get access to the company's weekly chapter releases of its current ongoing manga, uh, translated and simultaneously launched in line with their debuts in Japan, which is ideal if you're already caught up with a bunch of the bigger series. Mm-hmm. The real deal, especially if you want to start exploring Jump's array of action adventure manga, and what they have to offer, is you only have to pay two dollars a month it gets you access to this humongous vault of prior chapters on 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 top of the newer ones which are available for free. Keep in mind, free. There's thousands of chapters available across an equally ridiculous amount of series. It's almost too much to read for such a low price point. Yeah whether you're an anime fan who wants to read the source material for some of your favorite shows or a comics curious newbie looking to uh, expand to manga beyond your normal western comics uh, or just someone who who would like to who would like to read something really 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 long right now cuz you're stuck at home <laughs> um this is like a a, ser- a an app that you really should be trying because you know, I've never seen something with such a cheap price point with so much with so much to offer. It's it's really an incredible app.
1: Mm, yeah. So just uh, just to let the people listening know, what are you currently reading on the app right now?
0: Oh man, like I've been well, I get I'm getting into anime. I'm getting into the manga sources for my favorite enemies, nice, particularly. Nice. Uh huh. Yeah, because like I've never read uh My Hero Academia, for example. So I've been going back and reading my Hero Academia and a spin-off book, My Hero Academia Vigilantes, uh, yes, to yes. see how different it is. You know, um, uh, speaking of uh,
1: Vigilantes is wall, great.
0: Yes, yeah. Uh, speaking of food wars, I've been I've been reading that too. Uh, I've been reading uh, q Uh, and weirdly enough, uh, actually, I have ne- not I've not seen the anime for Q, but I do want to now. uh yeah. One Piece seems a bit too long, oh, but I'm uh, I'm trying it. Uh, it's Demon's
1: daunting, slayer. It really, really is. Hmm. Yes, yes uh, the demon, demon slayer demon manga. Slayer.
0: Yes, uh, I got into that. If you listen to Behold recently, I jumped into the demon slayer manga after I watched the entire series. Well, at least the entire first season of Demon Slayer on Netflix. Um, literally yeah. all of Dragon Ball is on there. I don't know whether I want to try or not, but it's a lot, like
1: Oh man, uh, uh, I've 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 been keeping tabs here and there on like what's happening on the Dragon Ball universe, and I'm just like. I'm not sure, man. <laughs> <Really? laughs> it, it, Seminar Teeth yeah. of work yep. from our childhood. Uh mm-hmm. had a great run, especially with Dragon Ball Z. Uh, I can't even. Oh man, I don't. Even, I can't remember what the current, uh the current series is. But I can't. I tried. I tried. Um, so I don't yeah. think I will re- be revisiting anytime soon. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, those are some great stuff to kind of uh, be looking at. Um, Shonen Jump is a very important platform for manga and anime um, artists over the years. And um, it's great to see that they've uh, d- branched into the digital age with a platform that is r- honestly really easy to use. Yeah, right? and, I like, mean, really I high quality 100% as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for $2 a month, guys, um, good shonen manga, well, manga in general, up-to-date, uh, official translations. Uh, mm-hmm. Go get it if that's your thing.
0: Keep in mind if you're already caught up, you can get on the app for free and just read the new issues. Like it's it's almost unreal how much they're giving away here. It's it's an amazing app, man.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah. Uh finally we'll be delving into uh some DC specific news. Um yeah. first let's talk about the the decision by HBO Max to release <sighs> the quote-unquote Snyder Cut. We don't even need to refer to what movie it is, but if you're living under a rock, it refers to Justice League. Um, as you know, back in... It feels like 100 years ago now, when Justice League was <laughs> released, um, Zack Snyder fell out uh, uh, of filming, uh, stopped production because uh, his daughter passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reins were handed over to Joss Whedon, who sort of had to Frankenstein together uh, a new Justice League movie in a very short span of time. The movie didn't do very well. It uh, it didn't showcase Sweden at its best. It didn't showcase Snyder at its best. Nope. Uh, and it was probably kind of held up as like the of a point where the DCEU died because it was such a flop yeah. theatrically at the box office. But uh, there's been this rising, uh, I want to call it movement, that's been happening. Yeah. Uh, Rallied by the hashtag release the Snyder Cut. That has called agitated petitioned uh they even bought a Times square billboard ad and chartered a plane to fly a banner over comic-con uh for snyder's version to be released um and on the film's second anniversary the the hashtag had its biggest day ever with uh the movie stars gal Gadot and ben affleck adding their voices on twitter and now you know a year after that
2: yeah
0: hbo max are relenting they're going to be releasing the snyder cut of uh the justice league movie uh with 30 million dollars added uh in terms to finish up the shots that were never finished maybe for some reshoots who knows uh it's planned for a four hour director's cut or six tv style chapters that you'll be releasing it in like so six 45 minute uh episodes so to speak uh on hbo max uh and it'll be debuting in 2021 what do you think about this news
1: just, just to be clear, right? Um, yeah. For those of you who are listening that don't know, a Snyder cut actually doesn't exist, mm. right? Uh, what they're doing right now, I, I won't say it's unprecedented, but it is uh, dangerous. I think, mm. um, as far as like recently we talked about, you know, um, the movie industry and just how they were just cutting out, um, you going direct to to consumers, right, with straight to digital um, streaming services. Yep. And how they were cut out the cinemas. So again, we're kind of embroiled the whole thing. The main reason the Snyder cut is interesting is because it's basically, the cut didn't exist. Snyder left uh, the film before he actually got anywhere close to a final cut. The four-hour cut that people are referring to isn't anywhere close to the final cut. It was a rough cut that he was supposed to deliver uh, mm. to the studio for vetting. Right, no no VFX. Yeah, so there was no VFX. There's no. I. I mean, like it was barely a film to begin with. It was just basically an assembly of cuts that, um, you know, he would like to use. Right, and that's as far Mm -hmm. as he got. What this thirty million dollars going into this actually means is that from here on end, um, if they set the precedents for this, and they are, uh, whenever a director or a more likely a studio is unhappy with the way a box of, a supposed box office hit is supposed to go, they might pull this again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know exactly what that means in the long term for, for the, the movie industry. I honestly don't care. Mm. I don't think that there's enough for Snyder to salvage, in my personal opinion. I mm-hmm. do want DC to succeed, right? Like, some of the best, uh, most iconic superhero stories come out of DC... Right, but they've been they've been playing a losing game, um, and it's their own fault, to be very mm-hmm. honest. Uh, so I mean, like, I really, honestly, outside of the fact that the this furrow is just like getting people rallying around it, somehow even the stars think it's gonna save their you know performances. There, I I really don't think so. Um, mm. I yeah. How about you? Um,
0: I think the stars. They want to see a better version of something that they committed so much time and effort sure. into, lah. And I think they believe in Snyder's original script, uh, despite the fact that the actual cut doesn't exist. But they believe in like his vision for it, lah. Right. And they want to see it come true. Uh-huh. Um, it's gonna take a lot of work, uh, basically to basically Frankenstein together this Snyder cut, uh, with maybe additional reshoots and additional VFX and things like that. It's probably gonna end up costing a lot more than thirty million dollars. Yeah,
1: thirty million honest. is not enough.
0: Uh the big deal for this is not so much for Snyder or Snyder Cut fans, who uh have been probably like outside of Star Wars fans, the most toxic element of like online subculture in recent <sighs> times. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I mean, good for them, like they won, right? Yeah. So good for them, like you know, like them and the and the let's redesign Sonic people must be celebrating right now. <laughs> uh but it's actually a big win for not so much for WB or DC, but for HBO Max, which is the new streaming service for for Warner Brothers. Yeah. Uh HBO Max. Is meant to be debuting next month with a lot of uh, fanfare. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, after its initially after its initial slate of shows over the next four to five months, they'll be debuting new shows, right? Yeah. At the same time, over the next four to five months, they can't shoot new shows, so they have no new uh, content for next year. Right. Hence, I think this is why they made the decision to release the Snyder Cut because they need something big to keep subscribers next year. I see. And and. Justice League, the Snyder Cut, is a good good way. It's a big deal, right? Yeah, it's a big deal. And I think also that it doesn't really change cinema too much because I feel that they've been doing this... For thirty or forty years, because DVDs uh, and VHSs have been releasing uh, directors' cuts all the time, I think about the seven or eight different versions of of Blade Runner that are uh, that is right now. You know? Yeah. There is the director's cut. There's the super director's cut. There's the original cut. There's the theatrical cut. Blah blah blah. You know. So like it's kind of been done already, lah. So we've we've seen many many quote unquote directors' cuts before. Yeah. Basically, kind of release. It. It's like it's like how comics release alternate covers. It's just like a cash grab. Um. So I'm not too cynical about it. Uh-huh. Uh, will I watch it? Probably, you know, because i I'll, I'm I'll watch it.
1: I'll watch it. Yeah, you know, um, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, like at this point in time, it, 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 it's clearly a cash grab, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's masked under this whole movement of people's outrage that, uh, you know, basically a studio fucked up what was supposed to be the best kind of like superhero movie of all time for DC fans.
0: At least the the combination of their of their beloved franchise, like. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, yeah. like, with all that kind of furrow, I'm just tired of it, I think. Mm. Right? Like, give us... I, in I, Because of the pandemic and because of the way things are going out, um, it's understandable that nothing new is going to come out for a while, right? That's fine. Actually,
0: like, for this year, it'll be fine. This year's schedule is actually totally set. Yeah. It's next year. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: But give us more new stuff, guys. Like, mm. really. You know? I, I think there's something we've talked about before, right? Here's like, like 80% of the stuff that's coming out right now in mainstream movies, at least, right, are remakes, right? Mm. Uh, or just franchises that they're rebooting over and over and over again. So, you know, outside of indie cinema there really isn't that much original stuff that's coming out. Uh, I'm, I don't know. Maybe for me, I'm just tired of hearing about the news about it because it's been going on for so long. Right. Yeah. Well, well done, guys. Like, hard-won battle. Um, you know, kudos to to everything that you're doing. I hope you guys yeah. realize it's the studio's choice in the end to release it so they can get your money. Um, but yeah, I want to see. I want to see what Snyder can do. I mean, like, it, it is an opportunity for him to kind of, like, you know, get things back together, I guess, and, you know, put out something good. And if he can, like, all, all the more to him, you know, all the power to him. Mm-hmm. The fact that he had to leave on such a tragic note um, yeah, is is a terrible thing, and I hope he manages to find something in this endeavor.
0: I think more than anything, like I really like that it gives some emotional closure to Zack Snyder yeah. to com- complete this work that he left on such terrible terms. Yeah, uh, exactly. uh, Whether or not it ends up being good, I it doesn't really matter. I, 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 I think more than it being good or bad, I like artists being given the opportunity to to com- com- finish their vision. Yeah. So on that front time I'm supportive of it I guess uh, on another front it it, it does open Um, some floodgates because you know are you aware that the the new things have been popping up like release the A-year cut of Suicide Squad release the Josh Trank cut of Fantastic Four blah 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 exactly Uh, and that's kind of like what
1: I was talking about you know like this is the first like it's gonna set the precedent for things to come like whenever either fans or the studios aren't happy like if we're talking about director's cut in the past like all of that had to be sanctioned Mm -hmm. those were all sanctioned by studio right like it didn't come from like the fans that oh you know give me the Blade Runner's director's cut like that didn't Mm. happen you know Uh, so I I don't know I mean would you be interested in seeing a Josh strength Fantastic Four cut
0: I don't know actually I would because like the first like 20 minutes of it which was purely Josh Strength, was actually Uh quite good of Fantastic Four yeah I mean if they had it I wouldn't mind watching it Um, with Suicide Squad not so much yeah, I don't care. Yeah. But I, mean,
1: I, I I will watch it just to see what the changes are. But I mean it'll be interesting to see where this goes, right? Like if this is gonna be a continuous thing like every time someone doesn't like what are they gonna do now? They're gonna tell Disney that, hey, you know, we really didn't like the last three episodes of the Star series. Can we get a new one? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean Yeah. I, I I, it's a slippery slope argument. We really don't know where this is gonna end up or if studios will begin to think of it as, you know, another way just to make another round of money from things that they've already shot, more or less, right? Mm. Like, the $30 that's going into this is small, it's chump chase compared to the initial investment they already made and didn't make back from the original um, theatrical release. So, they are making Mm. money anyway, right, They are making... It's a very small investment to make a whole lot more money, again. Um, So... We'll see. We'll see where this goes. Um, again, you know, I, I want to see DC do something, right? And I want to see Snyder get his due, right? Uh, Whether go to bed uh, as far as being able to complete this is. Um, But I don't know. I don't know. I have a feeling that it's going to be a lot more if this works, right? And uh, HBO or Slash Warner are going to make a ton of money from this, or at least get the kind of response that they're looking for with HBO Max. It might become a lot more commonplace. So we'll just have just multiple cuts and multiple releases again. Yeah. You know, because it didn't do well. Yeah.
0: Man, I foresee like in fifteen years time this dystopian narrative uh future whereby like every mainstream movie is written by fans on Twitter. It's uh <laughs> it's a bit scary. <laughs> yeah,
2: like uh, it probably the uh
0: the the caving into fan service because of social media. Um I, I can see good and bad points like fan service isn't inherently bad, yeah. but to do it all the time might be bad, so yeah, we'll see how it goes la.
1: that's why we need uh, a yeah
0: um next up we have uh speaking of people who are just like done with the d c right uh Ruby Rose <laughs> is done with uh bad women um. Shockingly, uh, Ruby Rose quit Batwoman after season one. Will not be returning for season two. Yeah. Um, she gave yeah. a, she gave a quote. She said, uh, I have made the very difficult decision not to return to Batwoman next season. Uh, this was not the decision I made lightly, as I have the utmost respect for the cast, crew, and everyone involved with the show in both Vancouver and Los Angeles. Uh, so yeah, the role of Batwoman for the first time ever, I think, on a TV show, um, will be recast to a new actress. Yeah. Um. Frankly, quite an unprecedented thing for the CW nu- universe, mm-hmm. especially. Um, uh, how, first of all, like, why do you think she did it? Do you believe like the rumors that you know she was difficult to work with, she was just exhausted from the long working hours, and and secondly, um, how do you think the the CW will proceed with recasting her?
1: I mean, the whole story hasn't come out yet. I I think that I mean very clearly, there's some sort of gag order going on. Like, not every we've only heard. Um, her official statement and, like, the creators and that's about it, right? now, Nothing has kind of leaked off the set yet about any sort of bad behaviour or anything of the sort or any kind of disagreements. So we can um, probably think that. Yeah,
0: actually, Variety actually gave, like, like, quote-unquote confidential sources in, like, you know, probably, like, the crew and, um, not not so much the cast, but probably, you know, like, the intents on set and stuff. They were giving a lot of stories about how, um, given the long working hours that Ruby Rose was facing, she, um, was apparently a very unpleasant person to work with, and had gotten into several wow. verbal and physical fights with members of uh, directing uh, staff, the writers, other co-stars. So, if um it sounds um. like from what what the the story that the interns and the the gaffers and and camera people have have painted, it sounds like a very tumultuous working environment where nobody liked each other. There were fights every day, that kind of thing.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Uh. Well, she was serviceable <laughs> mm. as Batwoman. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. It was you, okay. Think, I mean, like.
0: Uh, um. Yeah. Do you think like it is it has something to do with um, the the fan reception as well? Because a lot of people didn't like her as Batwoman, Woman, or even people from the LGBTQ community also didn't think like she was quote unquote gay enough. You know, stupid things like that. I think. I think it might be like a combination of of a lot of things though.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean like if things on set weren't great and things uh in the TV will, the reception wasn't great either. I mean that's that's a formula just for, you know, people get tired, people just don't want to put up with that shit anymore and this is on both. I mean, you know, the talent side and and the crew side, right? Yeah. Um yeah, so I mean it's she's not doing herself any favors, I think. Um uh, but given Ruby Rose isn't the most stellar actor uh no no yeah and and i think that's quite clear like she has the look for certain roles and i do think by and large she looked the part mm. uh and it brought like kind of like this you know edginess to 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 the character and all that especially for something like um cw right uh for mm-hmm. them to cast her um but uh, does it really matter honestly like, no, I'm, I mean,
0: I, I, I personally don't watch Batwoman anymore, so I don't yeah.
1: care. because I remember you and Hardy talking about, oh, you know, like first couple of episodes weren't so bad, and then after that, you guys just kind of tailed off and all of that. So I haven't watched any Batwoman, mm. right? I am more excited to talk about the who's possibly gonna replace her, because <laughs> in that, if if who I hope replaces her, yeah. comes true, I will definitely start watching Batwoman. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, like, online campaigning has begun. Stephanie Beatrice has begun, like, sort of campaigning for the role. I think she'll be really good. Um, The main issue with Batwoman isn't so much Ruby Rose, although she wasn't helping any. Uh, The main issue with Batwoman is just it's not a good show, with or without Ruby Rose. Yeah, so Um,
1: why did you guys, like, drop off from the series?
0: Because it sucked, uh. It was boring. Action wasn't good. Dialogue was bad. Um, It was just... It felt very flat. Mm -hmm. It was... um, just a bad show in general. Yeah. Uh sometimes the the worst stretches of it reminds me of the worst stretches of Arrow. Uh, mm. but unlike unlike Arrow, right? Arrow to a, to an extent could always be elevated by Stephen Mel. Like yeah. he if he when he was on, he could always elevate like mediocre material. And like that's something Ruby Rose can't do. Yeah. Uh, so at least there was Stephanie Mel. But the main problem of the show isn't the star. It's just the people working behind the scenes aren't good either. Mm, okay. Along with the star. Yeah. yeah.
1: So if 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 that's the case, right, do we really want Stephanie Beatrice, who whom we love from Brooklyn Nine Nine, to mm. be attached to a kind of failing project?
0: I mean, on the plus side, like I wouldn't mind it on her career wise because, you know, it's a payday, it's a recognizable role, she's Gonna get to branch out to more mainstream, uh, maybe action movies. Uh, in the future, if she does a good job in it, uh, I see it as more of a stepping stone for her. Mm-hmm. Okay. To get more to more media, uh, more mainstream attention.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. I mean. I. I yeah. I, 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 I think go, sorry, go ahead. it sounds a lot like the showrunners don't have their act together. Yeah, and uh, no matter how big a star you bring in, if if the people who are running the show aren't doing a good job, then you know mm-hmm. it's it's hard, right? I mean, like I love Rosa, love what Stephanie B J is doing as Rosa as well. I really do want to see her do more things, just because you know I think she's mm-hmm. really talented. Um, but at the same time, I'm a bit hesitant if it's going to be that bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, Batwoman doesn't end up as one of those series that just like chews up a different. Different stars, you know, with every season. Um, just not mm-hmm. a good look, la. Both uh, Man, I, whoever's attached I to it. I agree. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, it's going to be weird if, like, Batwoman ends up being like Doctor Who, uh, where, you know, there's a new star every couple of seasons, but Doctor Who has an in canon explanation for why they can recast, yeah. and Batwoman doesn't. Exactly. Uh, um, at the very least, I wish uh, Ruby Rose could have made the decision a bit earlier because they could have recast it during Crisis and have an in canon explanation yes, for why she's different. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I wish the transition had happened during crisis, la.
1: Yeah, I don't know, uh, how they're gonna deal with it in story. We'll see. We'll we'll see. They
0: they're probably just gonna ignore it, lah. People are just gonna, you know, oh, that's that's Kate K now, that's who she is. <sighs> uh, she she she's Latino and has curly hair. Yeah. <laughs> Uh yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, it, we just thought that it, those those are two big pieces of the, uh DC news that we we should probably discuss, even though we're not overly invested in Snyder Cut or Batwoman. Yeah. But you know the C- CW verse is fairly uh probably the biggest superhero franchise on TV. Yeah, the sure. D- And the Snyder Cut is just man, it's taken life of its own, so we probably should give our thoughts on it, lah.
1: Yeah, but I mean, yeah, C- C- CW verse, Le- uh, Legends is still great. Legends is yeah. insane.
0: Pretty much the only show that's like really genuinely great is Legends.
1: <laughs> Legends right now, right? Yeah. And yeah. we'll be reviewing that uh next month. Next month, right. So yeah, stay tuned for that. I'm really, really enjoying Legends right now. It's so good. Yeah, man.
0: Uh before we head off, like next month of of course we'll be uh talking about DC's Legends of Tomorrow, um, which I think probably the best DC show out there. Uh Hand in hand with like Doom Patrol, mm-hmm. um, I'll be talk- We'll be talking about the new season of what we do in the shadows. Yeah. Um, a spin off of Penny Dreadful called City of Angels. Uh, for quick hits, I'll be you know, uh, another great DC show actually is Harley Quinn, which I'll be talking about. Yep. Uh Speaking of the Arrowverse, uh, I'll be talking about Stargo next month. Um, Artemis Fowl will be released on streaming. Uh, oh. Which is interesting. Like Disney is not waiting for the COVID thing to end, so it'll be putting it out on uh. Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, the final season of Dark, um, Germany's um, intensely convoluted <laughs> but yet quite precisely plotted uh, time travel show, Dark is uh, coming back for precise. Extremely it, precise. There it, are no plot holes. It's, it, it's a bit frustrating how like there are no plot holes in there and yet I'm still not invested in any of the characters. Yeah. Um, but I will watch it because I'm intrigued. Like, I, it, it does a good job of making me want to find out what, what's next. Yeah, for sure um adventure time is coming back on hbo max also uh with with four hour long movies uh the next one stars BMO. Uh, it's called adventure time distant lands nice uh so we'll be talking about all of that next month and more uh with our special guest host uh, chris who is coming back yep yeah uh can't wait for that um i'm not sure what i'm doing for oh yeah i do know what i'm doing for pull this next month it is uh um, a new book by Nicholas Gerwich, who uh, wrote uh, Perry Bible Fellowship. If you remember the comic strip, mm-hmm. the actually it's a very famous online comic strip. Like I talk like it's a fucking obscure. <laughs> <If you remember. laughs> yeah, Perry Bible Fellowship. Yeah, that's the guy who did that, la. Uh yeah. Um, can't wait for next month. Uh, it'll probably be a shorter episode, yeah. But um, still excited to talk and a lot of big uh movies and TV shows coming on next month as well. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so till then, uh, this has been Hitzer. This is Aisa. Uh, goodbye, guys.
1: Ciao.